Blood, Sweat and Fear is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus. The series is based on her best-selling books, Blood, Sweat and Fear, Cold Case Vancouver, and Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arson, and a charismatic killer. Hi, I'm Eve Lazarus and you're listening to Blood, Sweat and Fear. It's a story of Inspector John Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator. Vance started work as a city analyst in 1907 and moved into police work a few years later. By the 1930s, he and his lab were on the cutting edge of forensic science in North America. He had worked on hundreds of police investigations and the international media were calling him the Sherlock Holmes of Canada. In 1932, Vance was promoted to inspector and put in charge of the newly formed Police Bureau of Science. He was given his own purpose-built lab in a building shared with the coroner's court and the city morgue. Vance's lab was one of the largest in North America. And just to give you an example of how leading edge this was, the FBI didn't open a forensics lab until 1932. Vance had been on the job for two decades by then. When I was doing the research on Vance, I was able to get my hands on several cardboard boxes full of his work. He had packed them up when he retired and they were sealed for the next half a century. One file included news clippings about Stuart Ashley, a 19-year-old who died under suspicious circumstances in 1933. It was 10pm on April 13th, 1933, and Stuart Ashley had just finished his workout at the YMCA. Glenn Nixon, who worked there, offered him a ride home if he could wait 20 minutes, but Stuart said he'd take the streetcar. Stuart lived with his parents and two sisters in Mount Pleasant, an established middle-class area and a short ride from downtown Vancouver. When Stuart didn't arrive home, his family started to worry. When he still wasn't home the next morning, they called police. Young men went missing all the time, and police didn't take much notice until two days later when the Ashleys received a ransom note in the Saturday Mail. The note was typed on plain paper and came inside a plain envelope. The address on the envelope was also typed. The note was short and to the point. It said, get $5,000 by April 20th or your son will die. You will hear again on the 19th. There were some glaring typos in the message. In 1933, the Depression was at its height and 30% of the workforce were unemployed. In British Columbia, where the average income for those who still had a job was less than $1,000, $5,000 was a huge chunk of money. And while a missing teenager wasn't news, a kidnapped one quickly made the front page of all the daily newspapers. On April 18th, the day before the ransom instructions were due, Stuart's father, David Ashley, gave an interview to the Vancouver Sun. When the reporter asked him what he would do if his son wasn't found by the ransom notes deadline, Ashley told him that he hadn't decided. He was being guided by Chief of Police John Cameron, he said, and besides, $5,000 was a lot of money and he would have trouble raising it. The second note with the promised instructions never arrived, and with no new sightings, no leads, and no follow-up, the newspapers moved on to other headlines. 
The question that no one asked was who would want to kidnap Stuart Ashley? Stuart was a newly minted teacher, fresh out of a two-year program at the University of British Columbia. He was taking a few specialised courses at the Provincial Normal School. This was a teacher's training college on West Broadway. He was getting the odd job as a substitute teacher. So on the surface, at least, things seemed to be going well. Stuart was six feet tall, medium build, and had dark hair, dark eyes, and a dark complexion. The newspaper photos show a good-looking, serious young man, and family members told reporters that he didn't drink and didn't show any interest in women. He liked crosswords, jigsaws, badminton, skating and reading. Except for his twice-a-week workouts, he rarely went out unless he was with one of his sisters. Stuart's father, David Ashley, had been the manager of Prudential Savings and Loan, but he now worked for himself as a notary. Chief Cameron told reporters that they thought the senior Ashley may have been targeted because of his job. Although he wasn't rich, he was in the loan business and criminals may have thought he could come up with the money. David Ashley said the last time he saw his son was on the night he went missing, just before he left for the YMCA. Ashley thought Stuart had about $5 on him and he hadn't noticed anything unusual about his son. Stuart kept regular hours and never gave his parents any cause for concern, he said. And while Stuart wasn't getting steady work as a teacher, he didn't think his son had financial worries. When police questioned Stuart's former schoolmates, they said that in high school he was thought of as unusual. He kept to himself and didn't join in with the typical high school pranks. At UBC, his fellow students told police a similar story. Stuart was aloof, they said. He made few friends, and although he wasn't disliked, he wasn't particularly well-liked either. The impression that all this left was that no one seemed to know Stuart very well. Around 7pm on Sunday, April 23rd, exactly 10 days after Stuart went missing, 12-year-old Richard Tisdale and his younger brother Herbert were playing in the old Songies Reservation near Victoria on Vancouver Island. Herbert was throwing stones into a scum-covered pond at the bottom of a steep embankment when he saw a body floating face down in the water. The horrified boys ran to get help. Constable Harry Mercer was the first officer to arrive at the scene. He found the body of a young man lying in about two feet of stagnant water. The body was quickly identified as the missing Stuart Ashley. He was clean-shaven and dressed in a dark blue suit. On one hand, he wore a glove which covered two rings. One had his initials S.A. The other had the initials P.N.S., which stood for the Provincial Normal School, where Stuart took classes. Police found two clean handkerchiefs in Stuart's suit pocket. There was also a Vancouver streetcar pass, and there was a newspaper clipping from November 1932. It had a phone number written on it. The number turned out to be another red herring. It was for his aunt, who lived in Vancouver. Constables Mercer, Atkinson and Bone pulled on rubber boots, stripped to the waist, and began to drag the muddy bottom of the pond. They were looking for the missing glove, a piece of material torn from the knee of Stuart's pants, and any evidence that may have been missed. 
After about an hour, Constable Mercer dragged up a bundle weighted down by a 15-pound rock and tied with a heavy cord. Inside was a grey tweed cap, a white gym sweater and a pair of grey pants with a laundry mark on the waistband, 416062. Another search of the area found a hole in the bank where Stuart had dug out the boulder. The police investigation centred around the clothes and the ransom note. They wanted to know why the second note with the ransom instructions was never sent and why there was no attempt to collect the money. The autopsy came back and Stuart's lungs were dry. That meant that he didn't drown, he was dead before he hit the water. Detectives speculated to reporters that the kidnappers had lost their nerve and killed him. Chief John Cameron and Inspector John Vance were asked to come over from Vancouver and help Victoria Police with the investigation and the forensics. Vance went straight to the pond where Stuart's body was found. He spent some time examining the crime scene and then gathered up some clay from the water's edge and soil from the top of the embankment. He noted the embankment was 24 feet above the slough and had a steep incline. While Victoria Police followed the few leads available, Inspector Vance returned to Vancouver to examine the dead man's stomach contents, liver and intestines and determine the cause of death. Vance suspected poison. Poison, he said, is so subtle that it wouldn't necessarily be detected in the post-mortem examination. Vance refused to be rushed. He told reporters that it might take a few hours to get results or it might take a few days. There are more than 600 poisons that can kill a person, but Vance felt that if poison was the cause of death, then the one that killed Stuart was likely one of a dozen. Vance methodically followed a process of elimination. After a few days of lab analysis, there was no doubt in his mind that Stuart had died from cyanide poisoning. While Vance was determining cause of death, Vancouver police were trying to solve the mystery surrounding the clothes that Stuart was wearing when he died. The Ashley family told police that they didn't recognise the clothes, but police found a corresponding laundry number to a coat in Stuart's closet. Their investigation led detectives to a dry cleaners on West Broadway in Vancouver, where the owner identified the mark on Stuart's pants. He told them that the number 41 represented the cleaner's plant number and the numeral 6062 identified Stuart as a customer. The suit had been dropped off for cleaning a year ago. The pants were part of a golf ensemble that was popular at the time and came with a coat, vest, shorts and trousers. Police found the rest of the suit at the Ashley home and one of the photos that the family had given to the press showed Stuart wearing the short pants. Police stepped up their efforts to find a timeline for Stuart's movements from the moment he went missing on April 13 to the time that he went into the slough 10 days later. Police gave the press a sample of his handwriting and asked that every rooming house and hotel check their registry to see if there was a match. There were no reported sightings of Stuart on the boats to Victoria and no one knew when or how he got to Vancouver Island. The mystery of his movements fueled speculation about the kidnapping, although no one could explain why he'd recently shaved 
and put on a new suit. His shoes were also a problem. They hadn't been worn very much, and it was clear that he hadn't walked very far in them. With nothing new to go on, newspaper stories raised the question about how his body got into the slough. Had he been thrown from a train or dumped from a car on the highway? There were no bruises on the body, which made both scenarios unlikely. It was suggested that death might have been caused by carbon monoxide poisoning. Had Stuart been kidnapped and brought to Vancouver Island by boat and then died while on board? The theory would explain why he hadn't been seen on any boat from Vancouver. One newspaper ran the headline, Killed by Gas on Kidnapper's Boat. Police weren't buying it, though, and the next day Chief John Cameron announced they were no longer investigating a kidnapping. Stewart had been seen near Ladysmith on Vancouver Island around noon on April 20th and in Victoria on the next day. Both times he was alone. Annie Provis of Ladysmith, a town on the east coast of Vancouver Island, contacted police and said that she'd seen a young man that looked like Stewart's photo in the newspaper. He was walking along the railway tracks and they had a short conversation about the weather. She told police, I came face to face with this young man. The sun was shining on his face. He seemed surprised to see me, and then he spoke to me and said, What a beautiful day. He didn't laugh. He looked quite troubled. Annie said he was wearing a dark suit with a vest and a white shirt. His clothes were dusty and he was carrying a small bundle. When Alan McLaughlin, an engineer with the E&N Railway, read that a body had been found in the slough, and then saw Stuart's photo in the newspaper, he was sure it was the same young man he'd seen board the engine tender on his passenger train at Nanaimo. He noticed Stuart, he said, because he was well-dressed, and not the usual hobo that the Depression years produced, trying to hitch a ride on the train. McLaughlin saw Stuart at Nanaimo and again at Goldstream when the train stopped for water. The engineer was taken to the undertakers, where he identified the body as the young man who had said hello to him and looked so out of place that afternoon on the train. The police investigation then focused on the typed ransom note, and this led them to the provincial normal school. The school secretary told them that she'd seen Stuart at the school about ten days before his disappearance. He had access to the school's typewriter, she said. There was only one, and it was in her office. An expert on typewriting examined the ransom note and confirmed that it was the same type as the one in the office. The inquiry into Stuart Ashley's death was held in front of a coroner's jury of six randomly selected men. Inspector Vance walked the jury through Stuart's last actions. Stuart had taken the rock, tied it to his bundle of extra clothing, and thrown it into the slough. He then sat down on the bank. Vance knew this, he said, because of the dirt he found on the seat of Stuart's pants and the tail of his coat was also the same as the dirt found at the top of the bank. There was no evidence that anyone was with him. Stuart then swallowed the cyanide that he'd brought with him. The poison would almost immediately cause paralysis of the breathing organs and create muscular convulsions, causing Stuart to roll over and roll down the bank. The grass and crushed vegetation had been thrown forward, indicating the body had rolled and stopped face downward in the slough. The bank had a 60% incline, so this would help the body descend. Cyanide typically worked within two to three minutes, 
But because Stuart had eaten peanuts shortly before he took the poison, the acidity caused by the oils in the peanuts would have made death much faster. Stuart, said Vance, was dead before he hit the water. He'd sat on the edge of the slough, swallowed the cyanide pill, then fell into the pond. In 1933, cyanide was used in photography, mining, and could be bought in most drugstores. The Provincial Normal School, where Stuart attended classes, kept potassium cyanide in the nature study classroom for killing insects. The room was never locked. It was a straightforward reconstruction of the boy's death to everyone except the coroner's jury. The verdict was that Stuart Ashley came to his death on or about April 22nd from the effects of poison, that is to say, potassium cyanide, and that we, the jury, do not consider that there is sufficient evidence to decide as to when, how, where, or by whom it was administered. It was a disappointing verdict for police, but perhaps not surprising. There were several unanswered questions that must have grated on the jury. Where was Stuart from the time he went missing on April 13th, until he was seen just outside Nanaimo on Vancouver Island seven days later? How did he get to Vancouver Island, and why didn't anyone see him? The jury would also have been asking themselves where Stuart got his shoes and why they didn't show anywhere. And most baffling of all, why would he send a note to his father asking for the ridiculous amount of $5,000? To try and answer these questions, I called David Klonsky an associate professor in the psychology department at UBC. Professor Klonsky specialises in suicide, and he told me that pain and hopelessness are the main motivations for people who try and kill themselves. Stuart was very close to his sisters, and Professor Klonsky thought one theory could be that one or both of the sisters had boyfriends and were thinking of starting their own families. Stuart may have thought that would be the end of his close relationships with them and his own very limited social life. The newspapers referred to his inability to form friendships with his school friends and his disinterest in women. Quite likely, Stuart was gay. In the 1930s, homosexuality was illegal, and to come out would mean being ostracised socially, losing his job, likely his family, and his place in the community. It would also make him a target for violence. Professor Klonsky says that people sometimes harm themselves as a way to lash out or to get revenge, and the ransom note could have been a way to find out how much his father cared about him. When David Ashley publicly balked at paying the ransom, it may have pushed Stuart emotionally over the edge, and suicide could have been his revenge. Stuart may not have made many friends in his young life, but all the media attention turned him into a celebrity and 350 people attended his funeral. The Vancouver Police Department's annual report for 1933 gave Inspector Vance and his Police Bureau of Science credit for securing convictions for 84 major criminal cases that year, including solving the mystery surrounding Stewart's unfortunate death. Inspector Vance's unique services, noted Police Chief John Cameron, were much in demand outside Vancouver. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eva coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. 
Thanks so much for joining me. If you'd like to read more about Inspector Vance and some of these sensational murder cases that he worked on, there's a link to all of this in my show notes that's on my website, evelazarus.com.